0: Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we have a real treat for you. John is joined by Micaiah Roerson, who built his company, Prodigy, to $1.7 million in annual recurring revenue before selling it to the publicly traded company, Upstart Holdings, for a staggering $110 million. But before we dive into the nuts and bolts, let's hear a quick word from today's sponsor of the show, DynaBook. If you're in the business of solving problems, you're going to need the right tools to help you get there. DynaBook's lineup of professional-grade laptops are expertly built for successful business everywhere. Need a budget-friendly option for everyday computing? The Value Pack Satellite Pro C50 comes fully loaded with everything you need to breeze through your daily tasks. The ultra-portable Tecra A40 and A50 are the perfect choice for today's hybrid professional. Delivering industry-leading security and reliability so you can work comfortably from anywhere. And if you're looking for a top-tier device that keeps up with business, the Portage X40L offers an exceptional computing experience and military-grade durability in one of the world's lightest laptops. But workplace technology needs to do more than check off a list of features. You need a device that's ready to work every day of the week, which is why DynaBook offers the best coverage in the industry – Rest assured they have you covered for the long haul with a three-year warranty and 24-7 anytime support. Get exactly what you need in a laptop and more at dynabook.computer. Now, as you're going to hear in today's episode, there's a number of technical terms that were used by Micaiah and John, including vesting, waterfall, amongst many others. And to make it easy for you, I've added the definitions of these terms in our show notes page, which can be found over at builttocell.com. I personally find it very helpful to have that page open when listening to the podcast. So if a term I don't know pops up, I can easily look at it and continue to follow along with the conversation. So again, be sure to visit our episode page at builttocell.com. Okay, so now let's focus on what you're gonna learn from today's episode with Micaiah. Now there's really two key takeaways you'll definitely wanna zone in on. The first being how Micaiah managed to sell his business for an astounding 67 times revenue. And the second is around the costly mistake Micaiah made while negotiating his earnout, a mistake that cost him $4 million. Here to share the full story with you is Micaiah Roerson. Enjoy. Makai, welcome to Built Sell Radio. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me. Tell me about Prodigy. How did you start this company? Yeah.
2: So uh, I was 24 years old when I moved to Silicon Valley, and uh, I had one really specific goal. I had basically grown up broke, like family declared bankruptcy when I was four, the whole nine yards. And I was like, I need to get around these tech people in Silicon Valley to start a business. That can basically give me financial freedom, so uh, it, I think unlike a lot of founders where they have this you know lightning bolt passion moment, whether that's real or not, that's certainly what you see in the headlines, I had one really clear, really specific goal: I want to build a business that I can one day sell uh, and that will basically let me retire and enjoy life so um, the way it got started was I was looking at markets with a friend of mine who became my co-founder, and we had some some like really fundamental basic criteria. First, it couldn't be one of those businesses where it felt like you had to win the lottery. So an example would be like being the next Facebook. I was like, there are a million super smart kids working on the next Facebook at Stanford. They're all probably really smart and someone's gonna win, but I don't know who it's gonna be. And like, I don't have a lot of confidence in my ability to influence that. So we wanted to pick basically a large old unsexy market with a massive uh, consumer trend, that was basically creating a gap in the market. And so we literally just sat down at a spreadsheet, looked at thousands of markets and came up with what became a Prodigy, which basically like the, the whole way it got started was, we found a study that said people want to buy cars online. It was 48% at the time. And that was increasing around 10% year over year. So it was really starting to see this like pickup where people want to buy cars online. But
1: what year, is this? What year was this? Running? This was
2: 2015. So, okay. So it's probably grown exponentially yeah, since then, yeah. but at the time it was 48%. Yeah. COVID certainly helped. Um, but it was this, uh, yeah, people want to buy cars online, but literally no car dealership in the country could sell cars online. So I was like, okay, a trillion dollars of cars are sold every year. People want to be buying them online, but car dealerships literally can't deliver on this. I'm in Silicon Valley. Nobody wants to help car dealerships. It's like super unsexy. Everyone hates them. What if we just built software that helped car dealerships sell cars online? So that was the idea for Prodigy. Uh it went through a number of sort of variations of that, but it was literally like massive market, here's a gap. I think we can solve it. One day we could sell that and um that's basically how the story played out. So like it was very deliberate.
1: Wait, so your idea was to go through the car dealerships because of course there are, there are there are apps I think of Carvana. Yep. I've never used Carvana, but I've seen the advertising for yeah. which I believe you actually buy the car Direct, don't you? And then, of course, Tesla is also a direct model where you can go online. I and mean, I think even the OEMs like GM and and others are starting to allow you to configure and even purchase the car direct from the OEM. So yep. walk me through your thinking about going to the dealership rather than the the, the car consumer. Yeah, um, it was something that Jack Ma, the
2: founder of Alibaba, said. I I like watched an interview, and it really stuck with me. He was talking to the CEO of Walmart at the time. And the CEO of Walmart was like, you know, we're so big, like we do all this stuff. And Jack Ma was like, we're going to crush you guys because every time you want to sell more, you have to go like buy land, build a warehouse, build a Walmart store. And Jack Ma was like, I just need to buy more servers. And that sort of just like distinction of like old school versus new school retail really stuck with me. And so I guess the thought process was, how do I get to where we can sell more just by technology not by all this warehouse logistics and if you look at carvana carvana is basically a logistics company like they have warehouses all across the us and that's a great business model it's also like probably a pain to run and so i just wanted to build a very simple server business that could scale really fast um but yeah carvana is probably the biggest like on the direct side they tried to buy us actually early on so that was
1: also oh really yeah yeah okay so so explain, so for a layperson, you're, you're, you're going to car dealerships and you're saying, I can help you sell more cars online. Yeah. Is that basically the value problem? So here's the pitch.
2: If, you, if I, I'd call up a dealership and say, hey, let me talk about your online presence. If I go on your website and I find a car that I really want to buy and I click the button on your website that says like, get e-price is usually what they would say. I'll fill out the form and it'll say, thanks. We'll be in touch soon. And I can't progress forward in doing business with you. I just have to wait on you to call me or something. And in the meantime, as a consumer, I'm gonna go do that with six of the dealerships who have the same car. And then now you're in a bidding war. So I said, listen, 48% of consumers want to buy cars online. What if after they fill out their information, you said, well, while you're here, would you like to see what your trade is worth? Would you like to see what financing options are available to you? And so we literally just didn't kick the consumer off the website. We said, we'll just let them go all the way, and if they want to buy the car, they can. We power it all. But if they drop off halfway through, we'll
1: pass you all that information, and you're way more likely to sell to them. So th- that's so cool. So again, as a consumer, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, I want to buy whatever Yukon. I'm, I'm like, okay, Yukon. I can, I can figure out what my old uh, Jimmy's worth, <laughs> and yeah. and they'll tell they'll, you know your software will tell me that or give me an estimate of that. Uh, you'll also say, ah, you, you know, you want to buy a Yukon? Well, that's you know, you could finance that, and your software would basically estimate my financing cost or my ability exactly. to, to 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 get financing, mm-hmm. my credit worthiness to get financing. Yep. So I've got become pre-approved through your software, and then would I also be able to, if I'm hearing you correctly, actually hit yes? Here's my credit card. I want to buy it right now.
2: Yeah. Um. Not many people buy cars with credit cards, so. What would really happen is you you would apply for financing, we'd pull your credit, we'd run that through a scoring model to see what banks are actually going to qualify you for. Um, Any sort of dealer fees, everything is all calculated and you basically get your out the door price. And then you schedule either pickup or delivery of your vehicle. And the final purchase, due to like state regulations, usually still is a wet signature. But like the car shows up at your house, your paperwork's in a nice little stack. All the numbers are what you agreed to online. You just sign, and the guy gets like an Uber home, and and you leave
1: with your okay. car. I think I get the business model. It's cool going to the dealership because people do go to dealerships all the way, like the local Chevy guy who you know who's got you know who's got a Tahoe and uh, on the on the lot or whatever. So yeah. I get I get that. What I'm not getting is how t- like two 24 year olds <laughs> come up with the money to build this thing because what you're describing to me sounds. Like incredibly expensive to build. Like I get it, but yeah. it, like it's one thing to describe it on paper and then the yeah. other thing to build the technology. Like how did you come up with the money to do this?
2: Actually, when, when we started the business, our biggest fear was running out of our own personal savings because we were like broke 24-year-olds. Like, there was no trust fund behind the scenes funding all this. Yeah. I, I had about... Four.
1: Who's the we, by the way? It's you and... So
2: me and my co-founder, Marty. So, Marty. Yeah. Okay. So he was, uh, um, we're both technical, but like he's, he's seriously technical and I'm sort of kind of technical. I haven't programmed in a long time. Um, And we both uh, actually, for some reason, both had about the same amount of cash saved up like $40,000. And this is in San Francisco in 2015. So, uh, 40,000 is not no money, but it's not a lot of money to live off of in San Francisco. So we really kind of had to hack our, our way to this and and the way we did that is we basically built screenshots that we like we hired this designer in like india for like she was like six dollars an hour i think and she built a bunch of screenshots then we went and sold the software to dealerships and we said hey this is what we're building if it's like ready to go would you buy it we get them to sign lois then we took those lois to investors and said look if you give us money we will be able to build this and there's demand because we have these lois and that's how we were able to raise like our first million dollars it was just like basically cheating the system.
1: I love this. So tell me more about the LOIs. So did they, was there any com- hard commitment on, on behalf of the dealership to buy it? Or was it kind of a notional MOI, I, like I, member of understanding? But I guess it's
2: about as uh, committal as a term sheet from an investor. They pretend it means a lot, yeah. but they're happy to pull it away when they want to. So uh, Okay. Yeah, it was I mean, it was not legally binding in any way. It was like, I, it was super soft to make the dealerships feel comfortable. So it was like, if we build this, and you still like it after it's built, then we will buy it for like three months. And so it was like, yeah, it was a low conversion. I think like 20% of the people that signed them actually bought, but it, we didn't get real customers from it. So like, it, we built a real business.
1: Awesome. And I missed it earlier. Did you say you raised a million dollars on the back of the LOIs?
2: Yeah. So we raised um, like a quarter million pretty early on. And that was basically idea and like technical team. Like just sort of, we have an idea. We're raising a little bit of money, sort of friends and money angels. Um, And then when we got the LOIs, we went back out and I tried to raise a million and a half dollars, basically totally failed. Like I didn't know what I was doing. I was really bad at fundraising. Um, And so we scrapped together. I want to say it was like $722,000. Like it wasn't even a nice round number because it was like every dollar I could get in, uh, I took. So that took like four months.
1: I want to ask you about your motivation to start a company, which was to become wealthy and financially independent, as I understand it. And how that played with investors. Here's my experience. Every investor on... The planet has read Jim Collins' Good to Great, and many consider it like a Bible, Mm -hmm. right? You got to have a vision that's beyond making money, you got to have values. And oh, if you're just a money grubbing entrepreneur, don't bother applying because we want to fund entrepreneurs who have a big vision, who want to change the world, who are inspired by amazing ideas. We don't want a bunch of like money hungry entrepreneurs. So you rocking up to an investor and saying, yeah, like, I, I don't care about the car business. Yeah. <laughs> what I want to do is create wealth. I can imagine that being like a lead balloon when in in the eyes of of, of acquirers going yeah. over very poorly. Did you disguise your motivation or did you reveal, like, I want to make money? Yeah,
2: yeah. I, th- I think investors are actually... Um, not nearly as intelligent as they like to think they are. It's like, it's a very much herd mentality. So actually when we started the business, uh, Peter Thiel's zero to one had just come out. So literally like if you just parroted zero to one, they were like, oh, this is so good. Like you're right. Like competition is for losers. Um, and so it's it's all this like herd mentality mindset, but you're absolutely right. I couldn't tell investors like, hey, I started this business to get wealthy. So what I learned really quick is early on when people would come, would be like, how'd you come up with this idea? I would tell the investor, hey, I did this market analysis. I looked at all these gaps. Like I found this opportunity and I built a business. And they were like, we like the business. We just don't like you in it. And they they taught me a term that I didn't know existed until they all told me I didn't have it, which was founder market fit. And they were like, you just don't have founder market fit. What I learned to do is tell my backstory, the exact same backstory, but emphasize key points. And by doing that, All of a sudden all these investors started telling me i have found a market fit so if i can just give you like the 30 second spiel on this you'll you'll see how this works so growing up i was always into cars i had the lamborghini on my wall you know i watched all the fast and furious it like it was huge for me i actually bought my first car when i was 14. i couldn't even drive but it didn't run so i spent a year (laughs) and a half fixing it up um and through college when i started my my first business I didn't know what to do with money. Like no one taught me how to spend money or invest money. So I literally spent all my money on cars. I had nine cars in college. I ran the car club. But you know, the thing that always frustrated me as much as I love cars is it really sucks buying them. It's so frustrating, like the buying process. Everyone hates it. No one's fixed it. So that's how we came up with the idea of Prodigy. And all of a sudden they were like, you were meant to be in this business. Like this is your life's mission. And it's all true. Like this is my life story. I am super into cars. But it's because I was like a poor kid and like what poor kid doesn't want the Lamborghini when they grow up. And now I can buy one. I like don't want the Lamborghini, but that's a separate thing.
1: (laughs) I love it. So you were successful in raising money. Yeah. Uh, Tell me, you made a pretty big pivot in this business. And I'd love to just kind of hear that story because you're off to the races, you're selling to car dealerships. Like, me take me, through what happens next yeah
2: yeah so there were two really critical pivots that happened in the business the first one was extremely painful one it was like the pivot that you don't want to show up on your doorstep basically we had uh scaled the team up from me and my co-founder to eight people and we had 22 dealerships that were paying us a thousand dollars a month so you know you can imagine we're a seed stage company we've raised a million dollars in very short order we've gotten to twenty two thousand dollars in mrr like off to the races, everything looks awesome. And, and I've got all my friends like from Silicon Valley that I had convinced to leave their awesome jobs to come join me. And I literally had like the worst two weeks of my life where I would walk in and every single day, it was this really nice woman who handled our customer service. She would say, hey, Makaya, like can we talk? She'd be like, hey, two customers just canceled. And in this two week period, it felt like every single one of my customers ganged up on me, all 22 canceled. So at the end of two weeks, I literally went from 22,000 MR to zero. And what happened? Well, we wanted to figure that out. Uh, the, the first thing that happened is like the, probably the worst part. I had to walk in and lay off five people. And we went back down to a team of three because I was like, we don't have enough cash and we have no traction. And then we went back to all of our customers and we were like, what did we miss? Because you bought from us and you were excited about what we were going to do, but... It, it, something didn't connect. And so like, what went wrong? And, and they basically said roughly the same thing every time, which is your software works great if someone wants to buy the car online. But the second they drop off, which is what like 99% of people are still doing, somewhere along the process and walk into our showroom, the whole thing goes to hell. The salesperson's never heard of them. They're like, I don't know what you did online. You're in the store now. And they literally would start from scratch. So the customer is actually less likely to buy the car because they're now pissed off they're like i spent an hour online playing with the payment configure etc and so they were like you've got to fix this or else you don't have a business and so we literally uh, went into dealerships and went through dealership training so me and my first hire we went through two weeks of sales training as a salesperson to try to learn like how do these dealerships actually sell cars and on the back of that we built our in-store product which basically allowed the online platform to pick up seamlessly where you left off in store. So when you'd walk in, it was like an iPad or an Apple store. Every salesperson had an iPad. They'd check you in. Oh, so and so, I see you were online. You were looking at the 2022 Camry. You're trading in a Civic. Like, it looks like it's worth 17000 um You know, let's uh, bring over the manager and like, let's talk more about your payments. So, like, it was really seamless. Um, and that was really what made the business work because we, I would say ultimately, we actually solved the business problem. We just hadn't solved it the first time. We'd built half the solution, but we're getting almost none of the results as a result of it. Did you buy
1: the iPads for the car dealerships or were they responsible for supplying
2: the iPads? (sighs) It's like one of the worst decisions ever. We did buy them. So we would rent them to them monthly and it was $50 a month per user. So it's like a, a software fee, but that included the iPad and the, the service of the iPad. And that was like, we, we changed our mind on that a couple of years in. But for a while, like we had thousands of iPads all over the country and we were like an iPad repair and like servicing technician store. It was, it was a nightmare. But it, it, what it did is it lowered the barrier to entry. The dealership didn't have to say, I don't know how to set up this iPads. I don't know how to like set up this infrastructure. We would just say, sign the contract. We will fly out to a dealership and take care of everything. So it wasn't the wrong decision, but it was... One of those decisions that like hard to scale.
1: Sounds expensive. Like what was your customer acquisition cost? Like how did you... Uh,
2: customer acquisition costs, it varied a lot throughout the business. Um, but early on, we were basically spending close to, I would say, twenty twenty five thousand dollars 25000 to acquire a customer. But our average okay. customer was closer to thirty three thirty five thousand $35,000 a year. So... Like and how
1: many years, what was the churn rate?
2: Uh, churn rate was about 2% monthly, but we would usually get a one-year contract upfront. Got it, got yeah.
1: it. So quarter of the base. So lifetime value, typically like around four years, something like that- Yeah, that-ish. yeah. Got it. So you were getting a hundred grand of lifetime value or at least revenue from the customer. They were costing you 25K, so four to one LTB to CAC kind of idea. Yep,
2: yeah. yep, yeah. exactly.
1: Got it. Okay. That's awesome. And so you mentioned there were two pivots. I get the first one. What
2: was the second one? The second one was the business model change. So our our business model actually from day one, it was always like the last slide in my pitch deck because it just felt so far off. But it was like, here's what we're doing today. Here's what we think we'll one day do, which is actually not make money from the SaaS. So um, that's why like the CAC to LTV and everything you were just talking about, I was like, let me think about how it was before we did this pivot. The real business model long-term was, let's get these iPads in the hands of dealerships, get the software on their website, get it so that every transaction in the store goes through our system, and then use that transactional volume to sell lending products and make money off of that. So the real business model was, let's get lenders who want to show up in the flow of the transaction, make sure that the dealership still gets all their payment, all their commission from the lender and everything else, but then charge the lender a placement fee for actually setting up that loan. And so um, about six months before we sold, I I basically went to the team and I was like, listen, we've been just building this SaaS business, hoping one day that we can turn on this lending business. And and at some point we just need to take a leap of faith. And the only way that we're actually going to be able to do the lending business is if we have a lot more transactional volume. And I knew that lowering our price would get us that transactional volume because we get more dealerships. And so I I went to the the team and I was like, listen, we're charging $3,000 a month on average. I want to take it to zero. And they all like fought me. I mean, this is just like a, a small team, small executive meeting. And I really pushed for it, which was a weird feeling as a CEO when you're like telling your team you want something and no one will let you do it. And it's also probably a good moment as a CEO when you're like, literally no one on my trusted team will let me do this so I, I probably shouldn't do this so we we compromised and we landed on 9.99 a month which was for us still a massive cut from three thousand. um and we said we're just gonna believe that we can sign a lender that will pay us for these things so we went out um in about four months before the acquisition we actually did sign a lender that would pay us one and a half percent of every loan that would uh, go through the system and because of that, ultimately, you know, a lending company bought us. So the pivot paid off, but it was one of those. We, we literally had to take like a, a decent seven figure SaaS business and just kill it. Like, and.
1: Okay. So many questions. Yeah. Here.
2: So first question is, what was your revenue at the time? So it, you made that it, pivot? it peaked at about
1: $3.3 million in AR. 3.3 in AR. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I don't know much about car dealerships. What I do know, though, is they make a lot of money on the financing themselves. They do. I think they, like GM, for example, will place deals with GM's financing option yeah. offer and they'll, the car dealership will make a spiff off that financing. Yes. Weren't you effectively becoming a competitor to the dealership? You have you have. To. If they were going to, put,
2: what's that? It's, it's a very uh, delicate place to be. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that because you you are right. This is their honeypot. Their this is how they make their money. So what you have to do is um, what we were doing is, is basically saying, listen, dealer, you're still going to get your full payout. So whatever the lender is going to pay you, you will still get paid that. But we are just going to make a little bit of money from the lender because we're helping them make the transaction easier. It's lower overhead for the lender because we're doing all the sort of background stuff uh, digitally rather than manually, which is how they would normally do it. So you have to prove it. The dealer has to actually launch it and see. Oh yeah, I'm still making as much money. Um, but it, the way we describe it is, it's a bake off. Every loan in a, in a car dealership is, is actually a bake off. So when when you apply for financing, not many people know this actually. When you apply for financing, the dealership already will check two to three lenders, and they see not necessarily what's the best deal for you. It's a combination of what's the best deal for you and what's the best deal for the for the dealer, and if the best deal for, the, for you is far and away the worst deal for the dealer, you may never actually see that loan. They're usually going to try to find some middle ground, which is like, good for you, good for the dealer. So we said, just show our, let us just put our loan in that bake-off. And you don't have to choose it. We're not going to force it. But if you like it, then uh, we're going to make some money from the lender. You benefit because it was also the best loan for you. So that made it so easier. cool. Yeah.
1: What gave you the courage to fight your executive team on this? Like, this seems like a very bold, risky decision. I. What gave you the confidence that this was going to work?
2: So I had one of the lowest moments in my startup like career right before this, actually, where uh, it was July 2020. July 2020, actually. So, you know, for context, like we're talking three, four months into COVID and we're low on cash. We have like, six months of runway left. And so I'm like, I need to go raise our series B. We have a little over $3 million in revenue. Like it's a little early for a series B, but we can probably raise it. So I went out, uh, All, all actually, <laughs> you don't really go out during COVID. So I did all my Zoom calls with uh, over 50 like serious VCs. Of those 50 VCs, I had eight partner meetings. And my experience, you get a partner meeting, the full partnership is there. You get like a 50, 75% chance you're getting a term sheet. I did eight partner meetings. They all went, I would consider it extremely well. Like as an entrepreneur, you kind of know when you bomb a meeting. And I was like, those went well, but zero term sheets. And so I was like, I just pitched basically everyone in the industry that could lead a good Series B. They've all said no. Um, and I was basically like, right now, I, I really hate this business. I, I don't know what to do. And so I literally just told my executive team and hey, I'm taking a week off. Like I just, I need to get away. I need to think. I'm not going to like answer my cell phone or anything. Here's my wife's number. If you really need to get a hold of me, text my wife. Otherwise, like, I'm going to go get out of here. And I went to Bend, Oregon, uh, which is actually ironically one of my board members, like, had a home. Uh, And I kind of like hung out with him, but we didn't really talk business and just like we went hiking and in the nature. um, And I just got my mind disconnected from the business. And I kept waiting on that trip to get this lightning bolt moment of inspiration to like how to fix the business. And to my frustration, I, I never got it until I was driving back, like at the end of the trip, sort of just bummed out. Like, ah, I guess we'll just throw in the towel. Like, we don't have enough money. We're not profitable. Um, and it was raining. And it was like, I was playing music. My wife was sleeping in the car. And I, I, I got it. Like, in that moment, I literally pulled over into a rest shop and I just like, wrote all this stuff down. And so, I, what, I, what I realized is, like, we're not going to be able to get to the, the second stage of our business if we don't risk everything and and like bet the first business and so to my executive team it felt very risky because i was like i'm throwing away business one to bet on business two but i was like they hadn't been in the 50 meetings that i was in with these investors so i already knew like business one is kind of not going to make it like it's in my mind the chance of survival for that is like maybe like one percent like it's 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 not going fast enough the margins are not good enough to your point (laughs) We're running like an iPad IT company disguised as a SaaS business. Like we've got to be willing to risk all of that to build a much better business. And I think the team had been become so addicted to that feeling of like, this is good, that they didn't want to risk it for something that could be really great. And for me, I was like, it's not good. This is death. Like in Silicon Valley, it's cutthroat. This is in the middle of COVID. Like you don't get to be good and raise your next round right now. You have to be exceptional. So um, I was just, I was like, it's either gonna go to zero or it's gonna work out, but I'm not gonna do this thing where it's like, we, we peter along for another couple of years.
1: Your $3 million ARR business, how much of it did you own at this stage? I know you had done some finance. Yeah,
2: you, I, I probably owned uh, 18, 19% of it at that time.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, got it. And what did you think it w- was worth maybe zero based on the eight meetings that you had, you know, like we hear multiples on this show of, of you know, SaaS companies trading anywhere from you know, four to 10 and beyond times revenue, yep. right? Did you have any sense of what you thought? Of my so numbers? I talked to a handful of business brokers just to be like,
2: hey, like, <laughs> it's like, I don't think this business is working. No one wants to fund it. So like, let me just see what the the market says. And there were some pretty painful conversations. I think I talked to like six or seven that specialize in automotive. Every single one said, there's no way you can sell this business. The one that said, we can definitely sell it, sign up with us, we'll get you sold in no time, had never sold a SaaS business before. So I was like, if this is the only person that will take my business, the answer is actually no one wants this business. So in my mind, it was worth nothing. Like it was literally already a zero. So I didn't feel like I was risking anything. Like I was like, this is not working.
1: But people listening to this said, but you had three, almost three and a half million dollars of ARR. Yeah. Your LTV to CAC is not bad at four to one. A lot of people hearing that would say like, there's value there. Why did you think it wasn't worth anything?
2: I think in our space, we were still relatively small and there were just larger competitors that you would obviously buy. People with more market share, more traction. And, and I think like the, one of the things that I, I think most founders get wrong about selling businesses, is I think selling it based on a revenue multiple. I think, like, frankly, selling on a revenue multiple is probably one of the worst things you can do to get actual enterprise value. Because the the person buying your business is not buying your business because they will hopefully not buying because they want to add revenue, they want to add to their market value. And so in our space, the people that would buy us were worth billions. And we have like $3 million in revenue. So changing their market cap by a 4X multiple. So we increased their market cap by $12 million. Like it's an hour in the stock market fluctuation on price. Like it doesn't move the needle at all. So I knew we had to, I knew we had the chance to build something much bigger, but in my mind, like it just wasn't worth anything. Like it really, I know that sounds crazy. I had a team of 42, like awesome employees, but I was like, it's just, it's not
1: working. I don't think it's worth anything. The, the financing, um, decision that you move to to kind of get a piece of the financing action was that with a view that you would ultimately be acquired by a lender like did you do that knowing that that will make you more attractive to a potential lender? I didn't think
2: it was necessarily going to be a lender that was um certainly like maybe in the back of my mind. I just thought it was it, like fundamentally a much better business so uh, the the TAM
1: for our SaaS business, kind of TAM. By the way, for folks who don't know that ex- expression, uh, total addressable market. Yeah,
2: yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So so like if if we we calculated if we sold every single dealership in the U.S. from the largest dealerships in the country to like mom and pop with one car on the lot, we could get about two billion dollars a year in revenue. Really good. But on the lending side. Um, even just like a very basic lending deal would get us closer to 14 billion dollars. So it was already seven times larger on, on the adjustable market. And so I knew just by tapping into a much larger market, even if we did equally well on the execution, we could sell for seven times more. Essentially, it was like the way I was thinking about it.
1: Got it. What was the reaction to your investors? Because you had seed stage investors, you had Series A investors, yep. so there were people at the table. Yeah, the guy in Bend, Oregon, who you went for a walk with. Yeah. Like, what was their reaction they, to the kind of burn the bridges strategy? Um,
2: they were extremely supportive of. So they they knew we we had like not successfully raised our Series B, and so yeah. our lead investor was Tribe Capital, who uh, sat on the board. They were amazing, like phenomenal folks. I've had we had like 44 investors in our cap table. I had like medium to bad interactions with many. Tribe was by far the best investor we ever had. And so I went to them and they were like in the seat with me when we were failing to raise our Series B. And I was like, listen, I need to pursue business too. And what Tribe actually did is they said, we believe in that, we will help you get there and we'll help bridge you financially. So they helped me put together a $4 million round They put in two and then they said, you go get the other two. And once it was clear that Tribe was putting in another two, like the next two came super easy. That's how it always works. Um,
1: Got it. So so by making this pivot, you you said, look, we're going to need to raise more money and you were successful in doing that.
2: uh, We had to raise more money anyways. Uh, Like that was like clear. We were just going to go bankrupt in like about six months. Um, But they were like, we'll give you four million bucks. We'll help you get four million dollars because... We think this will work. And we know if it works, you're going to be able to raise a massive Series B. So, so they, we just needed to buy time to get business to working. And we knew we needed more dealerships and proof that we could sign lenders. So that's what we... I've just told the team, like, that's all that matters. If you're not doing one of those two things, like, you're working on the wrong business.
1: Got it. So walk me through the next six months. So how... Was the pivot successful? I'm assuming there was a good news story here, but yep. you moved from whatever it was, uh, I've written it down, $1,000 a month originally. No, sorry. Well, your, your price went way down yep. from 3K a month to yep. 9.99. So what was the reaction to the dealers? Uh,
2: dealers were excited. Um, they were like, great, Like you're lowering our bill, that's cool. Um, they were a little skeptical on the lending portion so we had to really explain to them, we will never make you choose a loan that you don't want. It's entirely up to you and you can opt into this program if you want. So we didn't actually force the lending on dealers. They had to opt into it, but we said, we're lowering your bill either way. We think this thing is gonna be so good. You're gonna want it. And we're gonna put our money where our mouth is and lower your bill anyways. Um, so that, we had those conversations. We'd like roll out a plan customer success team. And then, I don't know, I, I, I thought it was really cool. I don't know if it was, but we came up with what we called the Manhattan Project. And the Manhattan Project, the idea was like, we're going to bring... Um, I, had this, I had this chart which basically showed our space and all the competitors. And there were like 33 competitors now doing exactly what we did. I was like, this is a knife fight. It sucks. No one's winning. So we need to bring a nuke to this knife fight was like the way I described it. It's like, so we're going to have our own Manhattan Project. So we would meet multiple times a week. And one, you know, one executive was working on signing lenders one executive was working on the pitch for the new lower price and, and so on and so forth. And it was like all hands on deck. There's times in the company where you just jog and you're like, we just need to rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And there's times when you need to sprint and it's life or death. Like this was that, like you could feel the palpable energy in the air. It's like, this is a life or death sprint. We need to make the Manhattan Project work, which hence the name. And like, now with Oppenheimer. I wish the movie was out back then because it would have like had more impact. Um, but like it really it was clear to everyone in the company, if we don't get this, like it's over. And we all like working here. I think most people did. So it's like, let's let's go do this. And very quickly, once we dropped our price point, our competitors were kind of like caught with their pants down. Like they they didn't know what to do because we went from being, we were the most expensive product in the space. And so we had that positioning in the space. And all of a sudden you could buy the most premium product also at the lowest cost in the industry. And it was like, Well, why would you buy anything else? So our sales went through the roof. And then um, because we could show that traction, we were able to go to lenders and say, listen, look how fast we're adding dealerships. You don't wanna miss out on this. And so we were able to sign our first lender. um, And it like very quickly, this story went from, this is August, 2020. I think this business is literally worth nothing to January, 2021. I was just about to go raise a series B. And actually, my mentality at the time was, I would never sell this business. Like, at least not like right now, like it's going so well. This is, this is our moment. We're about almost seven years into the journey. And like, it's, it's starting to become real. Like, this is really taking off. We were adding, I think we made the pivot in August. So then the next quarter, we almost doubled our dealerships. And then again, like we almost doubled again. So it was like, the, we've never sold anything like this. Like, this is... Like wildfire, um, which is a really interesting time to actually ultimately end up getting approached to sell your business because it was like I I fell in love with the business again.
1: So in January twenty twenty one. Where are you at in terms of revenue? Like, is this starting? Are you starting to get some of these commissions from the lenders? At the so the, like, so the lender like
2: hadn't even launched yet, um, which is like because we we but we signed this deal and just signing the deal. Moves it from being a fairy tale to like, oh, this is a real business. Like, sign what deal? Uh, we, so we signed a lender called Westlake and Westlake was one of the largest subprime lenders in the US. And the deal was we will help Westlake get loans from dealerships by putting them into our software and they will pay us up to 1.5% of the loan value. It was sort of a sliding scale depending on the FICO of the customer, um, credit score, but, uh, by just doing that, we basically had proven to everyone in the company, hey, we're building something that lenders actually want. And we hadn't started doing the conversion of that story into actual revenue because um, signing with a lender, like it's, 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 it's not fast to sign a lender, but it's much slower to integrate with the lender. There's so many legacy systems. So we were literally just about to launch the Westlake deal um, in January 2021 um and revenue was you know about 1.6 million at the time so we'd taken it from 3.3 um you know down down to like a million uh, and then it kind of brought it up to like
1: 1.6 and the 1.6 is is not coming from commissions from Westlake yet because they haven't launched yeah. it's simply coming from the 999 you're you're getting from yeah
2: the, yeah the yeah, we have about 160 dealerships if I'm correctly so
1: got it so what happens next? Like, did you put the business? It doesn't sound like you put the business on the market. You must have had an inbound inquiry from somebody. Yeah. That make, walk me through that. The sales
2: process was crazy. Um, it felt crazy in it's the crap. moment. And then now that I've talked with a bunch of other founders, they're like, yeah, that was really crazy. Like, that's not how it normally happens. Um, but yeah, the business is cranking. Like, we're, we're getting ready to raise a, a Series B. And I'm feeling pretty good. Like, I'm like, This is actually going to work at the end to put it in like scale perspective. The the massive ramp up in dealerships meant that we were selling on our platform about a billion dollars in cars every month. So it's like, this is wow. Yeah. You can talk about the 1.6 million in revenue. And it's like, this is why I was saying, like, don't sell your business for revenue. (laughs) Cause like, if I had sold for 1.6 million to your point, I could have gotten seven to 10 million dollars. But no, it's, it's the billion dollars in transaction volume. That's what you're buying. So we were feeling really good. And then Sunday night, uh, one weekend, I got a call and um, it was this guy named Val. He had done some of the diligence on our company when we raised our Series A from Tribe Capital. He was friends with them. And so he knew this place and he was like, hey, listen, uh, could you hop on a call with the founders of Upstart tomorrow? They want to like get to know you. And um, like, just to give you a heads up, they might be thinking about like a, tr- a transaction, like an acquisition. And I was like, wow. Um, yeah, I guess like, I can hop on the call. Um,
1: For folks who don't know Upstart, describe what they do.
2: So Upstart is an AI lender. Uh, a really simple way to think about it is lending in the U.S. today is generally done on a very systematic like, structure. You have this much income. And this is your credit score. Therefore, we will give you this loan at this rate. And it's wildly inefficient. Like credit scores were built 30, 40 years ago, but we're still using the exact same ones today. Upstart said, what if we could actually use AI to look at thousands of variables on a consumer and then predict how likely they are to repay a loan and then give them a rate based on that, not just like some very basic grid system. Uh, And so they were doing that in personal lending. And the reason they wanted to talk to me was they wanted to get into auto lending, and so they were looking as a way to get into dealerships. so um they I happened on the call with them, and I knew it was pretty serious. like Val had given me a heads up, but then I happened to call, and it's like their head of product and one of their co-founders and some like diligence people. Um, but it was a very casual conversation. They were like, listen, this is what we do. This is uh, our business model, we've been looking at the space, we find what you're doing really intriguing and we just wanted to get to know you. But it, it became really clear to me in that conversation and one of the reasons we, we changed our mind about selling was we perfectly needed each other, which I think is a really rare thing in an acquisition. I feel like a lot of times, um, like I'm going to pick on a little bit on, on Dropbox and Yahoo and Google, like some of the acquisitions, if you look at the acquisitions they've done, it's almost like a, we don't know what to do next in our business. So let's buy someone and see if it becomes our next big thing. Like Dropbox, I think for a long time has sort of had their file storage thing. And then you see them like buying mailbox and these are the companies because they're just like, we've hit the natural limit of people who want to store files with us. And we need to find something else. Whereas with Upstart, it was more like we built this AI lending model that is amazing and personal lending auto is obviously the next place you would go. And we need someone like you to do it. And for us, the thing that we knew would really make our business work was not just getting a bunch of lenders, because, like I said, it was a bake-off for every loan. So it was getting a lender that could provide better offers to the consumer and the dealer than the dealer was already getting. And so, looking at like Upstart under the hood, it became clear: I think they can blow out every other lender that the dealer is working with. This is a new lender that they've never heard of. And so, by bringing that to the table, it's, it's like in a 10 X everything. And so I literally, um, you know, the cheesy saying one plus one equals three. I looked at it and I was like, this is, this is one of those, like one plus one equals a thousand. Like we directly need each other. Um, and it just feels so obvious. So, uh, I can tell the whole story if you want to hear like, I mean, it was a quick timeline. So I, Yeah, yeah, so I, I had the conversation with them on Monday and I, and they, they were really, um, They wanted to get to know me, but I would say more so they were. Let me give you a look under the hood of Upstart, which I thought was really cool. Like it worked. I was like, Upstart's amazing. Like what they're building is so cool. So they said, Can you do the same on Wednesday? Can you show us a little bit behind the scenes on Prodigy? We want to see like how this all works. So I did the I built a presentation Tuesday, presented it to them, and 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 it was. I think this was actually one of the most critical things in our, um, in our sales process. I built a presentation that literally, it was like 18 slides. There wasn't a single thing about revenue, margins, like any of that. All it showed at the end of the day was basically, here's how many cars we're selling per month today. Here's our growth projections for the next three years. And then here's a few estimated conversion rates on how many loans we think we could actually sell if you were to work with us. And, and it's like, you can plug your own numbers into this upstart. If you think we're not going to sell 3%, you think we're going to do 1% of loans, whatever. And then the question is, if you were to add that many loans to your business, how much would your market cap go up? And like, if you played it out three years uh, from then, even the, the worst estimation would have told you like, upstart's going to add a billion dollars plus to their business if they buy us. And that's like, sort of like the, the worst case scenario, if you were to draw the conclusions in my slides. And so I think because of that, we never actually discussed my revenue during the sales process. Like they, they never once asked me um, before they gave me a term sheet. And so I had the call Wednesday after the call, I was on the phone with Paul. He said, hey, can you stick around? He said, listen, we really like what you're doing. Like if we were to buy this, what would it cost? And um, you know, they're always like, don't give the number first. I probably shouldn't have, but I just said, listen, uh, I mean, it was just so casual, like kind of the way we're talking now, like it wasn't this big pitch meeting. So I was like, we're going to raise our Series B based on the market. I I think it's going to fall between 80 to $100 million post. We might get lucky and we might do like a $200 million post or something, but this is my guess based on the conversations I'm having with investors somewhere in there. So I was like, it would have to be competitive with that for me to consider this. Because if you're going to give me an offer that's way below what I can get valued in the Series B market, I'm just going to go do that and in my head i was thinking like they'll probably land you know 70 75 you know and and i was like that's still pretty good money like i would never have to work again in a day of my life and that's pretty good for a kid how much do you
1: own of the company at this
2: 16%. point 16% you're you own 16 yeah yeah so i'm i'm you know, like i'm making yeah. 10 million plus on this and uh yeah i like for a kid who grew up skipping meals to like save money for his family like i'm pretty happy with that so um we go on a hike Thursday with the founders, just two of the founders and me, for like two hours. We talk about life and philosophy and blah blah blah. And then Friday, I get a call from Paul. He's like, "Hey, we have a number," and I'm like, "Oh, wow! Like that was super fast." And he was like, "So it's 100 million dollars plus an additional 10 million in consideration. So total 110. What do you think?" And I was like, "Well, crap!" <laughs> like. They kind of called my bluff. Like I gave them a range and their first offer is 10% higher than the highest number in my range. Um, So, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I guess guess that sounds good. I guess, you know, we'd have to think about it, but you know, we would definitely consider that. Um, And then uh, I remember like I hung up and I told my wife and she started crying like on the couch. uh, Because she knew like what that meant for us and what it meant for me. Like this is is my whole life's dream coming true. Um, So that was Friday. And Monday, we got the term sheet. That was seven days from the very first conversation I had with them.
1: <laughs> That's incredible. It's
2: crazy. And, uh, and a-
1: just to be clear, you mentioned $100 million valuation plus 10. What, what's the, what was the different consideration yeah. they offered in the 10?
2: So uh, the 10 is basically the earn out. So um, mm-hmm. they, they were like, we're going to 100 million is, I don't know if I'd call it simple, but it's as simple as it gets. You look at the cap table, you do your waterfall and you, you figure out who owns what percentage and you divide hundred million into that. The 10 million is uh earnouts for the team. And I think a lot of ways, a lot of times the way this happens is like the, the CEO, the CTO, and maybe maybe a couple of execs get big earnouts and the rest of the team sort of gets what their equity is worth. Um I was very adamant that because they were like list your key employees. And I was like, there's 42 of us and everyone's key. So I was like, the 10 million goes to everybody. And so literally, they were, they were really awesome with me. I was able to like build a spreadsheet based on role and title and like level in the company. And we divide the 10 million across all of our employees. So the, you know, take your equity, what it's worth, but also here's some extra stuff uh, for being a part of this acquisition.
1: And to be clear, they had to earn that 10, their slice of yes. the 10 million by hitting a certain, what was the earnout peg to? Is it revenue? Just time. Loan ball? So
2: one of the big pieces of advice that I got from folks um, was do not agree to any performance earnouts because you might be really good at running your business, but then they're going to buy it and they might screw it up. They're going to say, you know what? We don't like your inside sales model. Let's go to a uh, inbound lead, like marketing only model. And all of a sudden you still have to hit these like multimillion dollar milestones that you're getting compensated on. So we, we only did time. Um, my, all of my team got two years. And then, uh, because we were in such like a honeymoon phase with the founders, I agreed to three years. So me and my co-founder, um, both did three years. Uh, although we didn't stay for, for three years.
1: Sounds like a prison term. Okay, so you signed up for three years. What's the backstory behind leaving early? So
2: um, a couple of things. They they did it in a very smart way. So actually, my first two years, I wasn't even earning additional compensation. When I sold the company, I was fully vested. They they unvested basically half my equity. Not half, it's like a a third of my equity. And so they said, you will revest your already vested equity over the first two years. And then the third year, we're gonna give you this big chunk. And this big chunk is gonna be um, like your retention bonus, basically. And it was, uh, it was a big number, it was $4 million was what they wanted me to, to, to stay for. So it was $4 million, um, plus like a, a deep six-figure executive salary, plus an executive RSU grant. So not only that $4 million, but you're also gonna get a regular grant as if you are a VP of a public company, and your salary and everything else. So um, when, I, when I signed that, I was like, all right, like if they need me to sweep the floors for 4 million bucks, like I'm doing it. Like there's no way in hell I'm ever leaving before the end of this three years. Like this is, there's no way. Um, but I did something else that, that really changed my mind. I joined this club called Tiger 21. So Tiger 21, um, it was minimum net worth 10 million. Now it's $20 million, but it's basically like a, uh, professional network for people who have sold businesses or built businesses and built a personal net worth above this figure. The average net worth is $121 million. And you meet every month and you discuss what's going on in your life. And one person does a portfolio defense. They say, Here's everything I'm worth. Here are the top problems in, in my life. And what really struck me was anyone in Tiger 21 never has to work again. Like by default, you are wealthy, you're, you're set for life but they all, they all got to be in Tiger 21 because they had one primary question. Very obvious. How do I make money? How do I make money? How do I make more money? But what really shocked me is even after they had made the money, that was still their number one primary question. How do I make more money? And I realized that's a really crappy primary question if you already have enough money. Like if you don't have to work, if you can do what you want to do, the last thing you should be asking is, how do I make more money? It should be, how do I have more time with my family? How do I do what makes me happiest? Like The, the, the default question of how do I make more money, which I think is, like it's, it's such an out of touch rich person to say now that I have a bunch of money. So I just want to caveat, like when I was broke, that was a really important question. And I'm really glad I asked it to myself all the time. But if you've actually made it, I, it's so dumb to keep asking that question, at least in my opinion. So I was like, I need to ask myself a better question. And my, my question became, how do I give back? Like, how do I impact others? Because I had so many mentors and people that helped me along the way, when frankly, I had very little to give to them. They were already worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So like, how am I gonna help them? They were just helping me because that's what they wanted to do. And I wanted to do that for others. And as soon as that clicked, I looked at the 4 million and I was like, I'm actually getting paid $4 million to, in my mind, like not be able to help others. I should be spending my free time helping others, giving back, teaching what I've learned. And it's almost like a bribe. Uh, It's a big bribe, like to to be fair, even at my net worth, $4 million moves the needle. It's not like I wouldn't notice- How much
1: of it, how much of your, what was your net worth at the time and what was the $4 million as a a percentage?
2: uh, So um, net worth at the time was probably like so, So like yeah, yeah, like it's, it's that's a big number. Like it's not like it's like some drop in the bucket. Um, yeah. But right. I was like, I have enough, and enough is all the money anyone ever needs in this world. And it's a different number for everybody. Um, but I was like,
1: how do you calculate it? By the way.
2: So I enough. So um, I I went to Fiji to a Tony Robbins seminar and. I'm a huge Tony Robbins guy. I won't go on a Tony Robbins tangent, but one of the, the key takeaways I learned was he had this um, framework called, that he called like the five levels of wealth. And level one was basically, if you stop working, you can afford like to, to, to barely scrap by. Like you have to downsize your apartment and move into this crappy little place and live on ramen, but like you can kind of get there. Level five is you can buy whatever you want. You can buy the two hundred million dollar condo, you can buy the yacht, you name it um and I am not level five, like I'm just not there, but level four, which is basically the way to think about it, is you can't buy the two hundred million dollar condo, but you can buy the two million dollar condo, and that's still pretty nice. You can't buy the yacht, you can charter it for a weekend every now and then, so it's like you're almost at your insane dream life. It's just a little toned down, and I was like I'm there, and level five would be fun but level five doesn't serve anyone but me and i think i have something more important to do with my life so kind of just walking through that framework on this like little poor remote village in fiji frankly um i was like i think i have enough and um you know that happened about a year after the sale so i still stayed for a year because upstart like objectively changed my life i i literally have achieved at the time all of my life goals all my financial goals everything and they took a big leap of faith on me. They gave me a term sheet within a week for 10% more than I asked for. So I, I knew I wanted to stay um, to, to do well by them. And 100% of my team joined Upstart. Every single person signed with Upstart when they gave them the employment offers. So I was like, I need to do right by my team. So I stayed about another year and really helped get them. We went from 160 dealerships to I want to say like 700, 800 dealerships in that two years. So like massive growth. The CEO himself, has multiple times called their acquisition a 10 out of 10, like a dream fit. Um, And that really mattered to me because you also, I think this thing that founders do that I I, I hear a lot about and I just never wanted to be that guy was like, as soon as they get acquired, they're like, screw this company. Like I I, I talked to one founder, I won't give his name. He literally decided as soon as he was acquired, he was going to go to the office barefoot every day and just read Harry Potter books and just be this like super weird guy until they'd kick him out and be like, you know what? You're just creeping everyone out. Just take the full earn out, leave, and like, let's just part ways. And, and it worked for him. Like, he got it. But like, is he really proud of what he built? Is he really proud of like his team members that trusted in him? And then he just sort of like bailed on them? I don't, probably not. And I can at least sit here today, talk to you and be like, I'm really proud of what we built. I'm really proud of what we did at Upstart post-acquisition. Um, so I can walk away with like no regrets.
1: Take me into the boardroom or the, the conversation where you shared your decision with Upstart that you were going to leave and not fulfill the earnout. out. Like, where were you? What was their initial reaction? Just like, like, Let me be a fly on the wall for a moment yeah. and understand what that conversation was like.
2: Yeah. So um, I, I, there was a, a series of conversations. I'm just like putting myself back in this because it was about, geez, it was almost a year ago now when these conversations were happening. Um, and I basically went to them and I said, like, listen, I think, and I use the word I think a lot when I was having this conversation. And they called me out for it later. They were like, Do you think or have you decided? And I was like, I think I've decided. And I was like, I have decided. <laughs> um, but so I, I appreciated them like trying to really understand what's going on. But I was like, I, I I think I've done most of what I came here to do. I think the team's in a good place. I think we're really cranking at the market. And if I'm being honest, The team was about 200 people at the time and i was like i'm 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 not a zero to one guy but i'm not a 200 to 1000 guy i can learn the skills but it's not what like wakes me up every day super excited i love being in the team building things with them and and this sort of i'm managing a team who manages a team who manages a team it's it's a very different skill set and it doesn't light me up inside i like actually getting my hands dirty so initially the conversation was i i think i still want to build things with you guys um because i was i still hadn't fully accepted that i was going to walk away from the earnout was like still so much money um for sure so i was like i i I still want to do stuff here but um i don't think it's going to be running my company and i'd like to talk about a transition plan and i actually thought that would take like a year like we'd put out a search, find this guy or a gal. And like, you know, a year later, we'd, I'd, I'd help train them. And then six months later, I'd leave. But then a week later, one of the co-founders came to me and said, hey, what do you think about this guy named Alex? And I was like, oh, I didn't think Alex was available because Alex runs many of the most critical teams in the company. So I, I didn't assume Alex was like poachable to, to take my role. And I, and I thought about it I was like, you know, actually, we're, we're a t- company of about 2,000 people, and there's, there's only a, upstart Yeah, and, and there's only a couple people in this entire company, probably like less than three, that I would trust to run my team. Alex would actually be top of that list. So I was like, if Alex is open to it, I'd be open to helping him transition. Um, and upstart uh, I can't remember the exact name for their value, but it's basically like speed, 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 speed. They like to do things really quick. And so from that conversation where I was like, if, if Alex is open to it, I'd be open to it. Within 30 days, Alex was in the role and I was just his like supporter and mentor. Um, and it was great. Like Alex is a seasoned large company executive. And there's a lot of things that I just don't do. Um, like... It's not even that you just can't pay me enough to do it. Like that's probably it on some level, if I'm being honest. But so It's also just like I'm just not the guy who wants to spend a lot of time managing upwards and managing across 20 other teams within Upstart. That's just not me. Um, Alex is really good at that sort of thing, and it it sounds like flippant when you just think like, oh, you have to do all this like sideways managing and manage expectations. But like, you need these teams to work alongside you to achieve your goals. It, it actually does matter, um, and I just I just didn't really love leaning to that job. So I watched Alex come in and like really lean into that really hard and, and do a really good job building cross department relationships and things like that. Um, and my initial plan was I'll, I'll, you know, help Alex for like six months and then I'll build some new interesting business with an upstart. Cause again, I was really attached to that 4 million. Um, but eventually I just got to the point where it was like the 4 million feels like a bribe. Um, I don't know if, have you uh, read the book Die With Zero? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great book. So, yeah. so um I was literally meeting Bill Perkins in New York and I had a call with Upstart two hours before I meet with Bill Perkins and Bill, and I'm like, how am I going to go hang out with Bill Perkins and be like, yeah, but I'm going to stick around and, and do this for the 4 million bucks, like in this, this role that I, I think I should be doing more important things in. Um And so I had this call and it, it, it wasn't the pressure, but it was like a, Am I going to be proud to tell Bill Perkins what I do at the start of this conversation? Uh, And so I literally had a Zoom call and I was like, I think it's time that I actually part ways with you guys. And they took it really well. They were like, hey, we get it. Like, it's cool. You've done a really good job. Like, everyone's really happy. They were like, the last thing we want this to feel is like you're getting kicked out or anything. We want it to feel like a celebration. You're on to new things. And so everyone was really good about it. Um, But, you know, two hours later, I was able to look Bill Perkins in the eye and be like, hey, I just walked away from four million bucks. Because I read your book and I want to die with zero. So um, that's also what prompted us to you know, move abroad. And now we sort of like travel full time and stuff like we're actually, we're not waiting on some fake milestone of more money to do what we've always wanted us to do. Me and my wife, like we're living it now. We're literally living our dream lives. So
1: congratulations. I think thanks. that's, that's incredible for folks who haven't read die with zero. It's a great book, especially for an entrepreneur. Uh, that maybe has a tendency to move the goalposts as, uh, as, as their business grows. So I, I'd recommend it. I'll put it in the show notes for folks if, uh, if they're interested. Hey, I had one more question for you before we go to the lightning round. Tell me, like, how did you approach telling your parents that you'd sold your company?
2: Um, I didn't. So actually, it's ironic it's, because it now I, 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 don't, I still really don't like talking about money numbers, everything publicly. Um, but when Upstart actually first showed me the press release, they had in, in the headline, that the amount that we sold for, and I took it out. Um, I was like, don't do it. I don't want anyone to know. I want this to be like really undercover. Cause I, I just didn't want anyone to like, look at me differently. Um, and so as that relates to telling my parents, when I told them, I think I like, probably downplayed it too much. So I was like, hey, I sold my company, And I'm joining Upstart and they were like, what does that mean? And I was like, well, um, now I work for Upstart. So they've bumped my salary a little bit, but like basically the same old, like I'm still running the company. Like, you know, just have a little bit higher salary. Um, And uh, yeah, I I remember like we moved into a nicer apartment and like both on my side and my wife's side, Evan was like, are you guys going to be okay? Like, ooh, like, can you afford that? And it like wasn't that. Expensive in hindsight, but they were like, they were really financially worried for us. And I was like, geez, I think I like sort of downplayed this too much. Um, And, uh, you know, we sort of settled into this, like, it's, I bought a Porsche 911 cash. So like, no one in my family is like, Makai is just struggle bussing his way through life. Um, I I, I think at this point, like, I support my my, my family financially. So like, um, they're really grateful for that. And, um, I, you know, I, I think it's sort of a, they're really proud of me, but like, I, I think parents just want their kids to be happy. Not, I think, I think if anything, and they've remarked on this, you're, they're like, Makai, you're so much happier now. Um, and it's true. I was, I was flipping through one of my journals the other day and I went to throw it out and I was like, let me just read it before I like throw it out. And this is like 2019 journal or something. And I read it and I was like, whew, that is some dark stuff. <laughs> like anyone who read this would be like, this is the diary of someone who is severely depressed. Like I wasn't suicidal, but it wouldn't have been a crazy conclusion to be like, I should probably be worried about this person. Um, and I think that just sort of bleeds into your life. And so I think more than anything, my parents is just like, Makai seems lighter. He's happy now. Because um, yeah, business is just really hard. And I think, People don't talk about it enough, but it was yeah, there were some really dark
1: days. So, do you find yourself being drawn back into entrepreneurship? Uh, like, first of all, I applaud you for moving away. Uh, when I sold a company about fifteen years ago, we we moved to Europe. So I I nice. feel. A kinship with you on that measure. It was great because people around me spoke a different language and they were living a different life that I was living. And so I didn't have constant reminders of building wealth and building your company. And like, it wasn't like all in my face all the time. And so I found that to be really uh, cathartic and super helpful to be away just in a different context. You've moved to London, not exactly um an uncommercial place it's yep. a pretty commercial market uh, some folks say london uh, rivals new york in terms of the capital of, of the world when it comes to finance so it's making money and wealth is still very much a part of life in london are you finding yourself wanting to like have a you know have a bit of a diet from that that world in an effort to to kind of justify your decision to kind of move off the wealth building train. like you know, do you know what I'm yeah. asking? I'm doing a terrible job of no, 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 asking no. this question. I, I,
2: so the funny thing was when I told all of my founder friends, like, you know, as a CEO, you mean lots of other CEOs. So I was like, hey, like, I think I'm done. Like I have enough um, and I'm just going to like enjoy life. I'm going to travel. Like we have a place in London. We have a place in Taipei. But frankly, we just traveled around Europe and Asia and those are kind of home bases. Um, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do with my life. And they were like, but, but you could just make more money. And they, they still have that primary question. I was like, yeah, but like, but I'm happy with the money I make. But they were like, yeah, but like, you could have more. And so I've literally only met one person who has actually understood this. His name's Kunal, he also lives in London and he's also sort of like retired, um, has built a business and sold it. Um, so ironically London brought me that one person. But everyone else is like, Makaya, like you're young, you're like someone, I, w- I was hanging out with the founder and He's like, Makaya, you're 33. You're like an amoeba. Like you've got so much young energy, like you're going to build another business. I know it. And I'm like, I, I don't actually feel the pull to do that. Like finding that diary kind of confirmed, like mm, probably shouldn't do this. It's not good for your mental health or your like actual physical health because they're so closely interlinked. But what I also realized is I am an extremely driven person. I I cannot just sit around and meditate, binge Netflix, whatever. Like I will, I will go stir crazy. So what I've done is I've taken that same desire to, to achieve, desire to, to grow and said, how do I put that in a positive vehicle? So it's not the Micaiah makes more money vehicle. It's now the Micaiah impacts other people vehicle. And so that's how I started doing content. Like I, I now make YouTube videos every week. I post stuff on like Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, um, and it's literally just me teaching, hey, I was broke and had nothing. I went from that to selling a company for $110 million and basically retiring at 33. And here's everything I had to learn to do that. I hope it helps you too. And I don't wanna sell courses. I don't wanna like make money from that. I think I would like to make some ad revenue at some point because I have like a full-time editor that works on this stuff. So I'm like, it can't just be an endless money pit of passion. Um, it needs to be like break even, but I like I have that competitive drive where it's like, how do I how do I impact more people? How do I create better videos where people learn more? And I got to say, like, I'm a small creator now. I've got a couple thousand subscribers on YouTube, but I get 10, 20 comments a week or DMs from people who are like, Makai, like you're 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 changing my life. And like it's probably hyperbole, like I'm not actually changing their life yet, but I'm like, I'm inspiring these kids, frankly that like that they can get out of their situation and
1: yeah it's it's awesome and for folks who who don't know it's youtube.com uh slash ask Micaiah. and i'll put that in the show notes dot com to so you know the the spelling of makaya's uh first name that's a tough one are you up for a quick lightning round yeah let's do it let's do it a couple of questions before i let you go they deserve a short or long answer however long you want to make them doesn't doesn't matter what's the slimiest thing a potential acquirer or investor did to you? Um, Can I give two answers?
2: Sure. So uh, both investors, one investor um, who put in $25,000, like four months later decided he just didn't like us and wanted his money back. And it was in the middle of us closing a $5 million round led by 8VC and Battery Ventures, like two massive, amazing Silicon Valley investors. And I was like, if if you actually take this money out, it's a material event. We have to disclose that to these investors. They're going to wonder what the hell's going on. You could literally sink our whole company. And he's like, I don't care. I want my 25 grand back. And so we literally had to get all the other investors. like It was like a weekend fire drill. All the other investors to sign a document saying this guy has no right to anything in the company. He still has his equity and he still made a bunch of money when we sold because he invested a, a $6 million post valuation. So like, sorry for almost 20xing your money. Um, but uh, yeah, we had to like remove his ability to like take his money back. And he wouldn't even talk to us. He was just like, I don't know what his deal with. He's not close to me and I just like cut him off. Um, so that was one. The second thing, and I feel like I, I feel like founders don't talk about this enough. Every single fundraising round we did, we had a, a term sheet pull out from us. Seed round, series A. Um, actually, I guess not the bridge round, but like the, the seed round, we had a $1.1 million term sheet that an investor signed with us. And we had three weeks of cash left in the bank when I signed that term sheet. Three weeks. And the whole team knew it. So I came into the company. I said, guys, like... We were about to run into cash in three weeks, but I have awesome news. Like here's the term sheet. We signed it $1.1 million and I took the whole team out. We celebrated and that was on a Friday. I was like, enjoy the weekend. Know that you're building something amazing here. We got this. And Monday, the investor called and said, we're actually not going to do that deal. And I remember I just sat on my couch and cried. Like I couldn't, I like, I didn't know what to do. I was like, I've let everybody down. How do I even tell the team? Like, I think you're all fired. I don't have the money. Um, and if I could just give like a really quick shout out to someone. His name is Ravi Balani. He ran Alchemist Accelerator. Um, he called me to talk about what had happened. And the reason the time she had pulled out was a bit of a misunderstanding, basically, on our numbers. Um, and I thought Ravi was going to call me and chew me out. Like, you just had a big lead investor pull out. Like, how could you misrepresent your business? So on and so forth. And it wasn't a misrepresentation. It was just like a, a, um, they misheard something in one of our meetings. And I, I just expected Robbie to lay into me. And he was just like, Micaiah, are you okay? Like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm like getting emotional thinking about it. It's like the, the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. He just like really spent 30 minutes consoling me as I was like crying on the couch. Uh, and yeah, so huge out to Robbie. That guy's amazing.
1: Amazing. If you think about the seven days you negotiated with, <laughs> with Upstart and <I'm> laughing because <laughs> this has to be the shortest deal I've yeah. ever heard of. Over that time, what is the biggest mistake you made during that process of negotiating the sale of your company? What's the biggest do over you'd like a mulligan on?
2: Mm. Um, well, I probably shouldn't have thrown the number out first. Like they could have come back and said, you know, you're going to add $2 billion to our market cap. So, We'll, we'll give you 170 for the business. Who knows? Like, it's, it's sort of hard to, to play these uh, games back in your mind. But I think that as a general rule of thumb, it's not great to throw out the first number. The other thing is I should have advocated more for, and everyone told me to do this, and I just didn't listen, like a shorter earn out. Like, th- that, that mistake objectively cost me $4 million. Like, there's no questioning it. Like, if I'd had a two-year earn out like everyone else on my team, I would have gotten to $4 million bucks. But I was so thrilled with the prospect of joining Upstart and achieving all of my life dreams. I was like, Psh, I'd do a 30-year-old now. Like, I'm, let's go. Um, and I think it, it's just that honeymoon phase when you, when you literally watch all of your life's dreams coming together. You're almost willing to sign anything. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just an objective fact. If I had pushed back with like a slightly uncomfortable conversation for five minutes might have had an extra 4 million bucks. So this is what it is, I guess. What
1: was, highest, what was the highest point emotionally you reached during the process of selling?
2: Um, I was... So I was really, really cautious around getting too emotionally high during this process. Because I talked to people and they were like, Listen, term sheets, 50% chance it falls through. Uh, And most of them are like almost 100% chance that 110 is going to come way down. Like, that's the teaser offer. It's non binding. Um, So, every day I would try to like ground myself. I wouldn't be like, let me go shop for Lamborghinis and like, let's go look at some Penthouse apartments. I was like, I need to stay super grounded and constantly remind myself if this happens, I'm extremely fortunate. But like, we still have a really good backup plan. We're going to go raise our Series B. We have a good business phase two of this business model is working. Um, and I just try to stay super, super grounded. And I think that really helped because I was like, if the, if I, if I attach myself to this sale and it falls through, I, I'm gonna spiral down so quickly, I'll probably lose the whole business. Like I won't be able to run this thing. Um, but then actually signing it. Yeah. Like just a really magic moment with my wife. Um, who I started dating when we were just like, a, you know, a, a three person company. So she'd kind of been through the ups and downs, uh, along. And she was just like my, my, my entire support network, frankly, as I ran the company. Um, and so just like realizing that we could both live this dream life that we'd been waiting for, for seven years, hoping that we could get, you can't put money on that. Like money helps to do it, but like the emotions there are just unbelievable.
1: Where did you go to educate yourself about the process of selling a company? Are there books you can point people to, courses, mentors? You mentioned Tiger is great if you've got a lot of money to invest. Yeah. But were there any of those resources you, you
2: sort of sought out or used? Yeah, so I have a really like simple, basically fail-proof way of networking or learning anything. And I've used it to meet amazing CEOs, like in the room with awesome people. Or just in this case, learn how to sell my business. I contact the people in my network who I think are best at this specific thing. So in this case, I talked to friends who had sold businesses and I said, hey, tell me everything you know about selling a business. And then who do you know that you think did an awesome job at selling their business? Usually I'd say like, who was the best at selling their business? They got the crazy multiple or whatever. And by just doing that like two or three times, you, you get the best person that someone knows and then the best people that they know and like two or three rounds of that, you're you're meeting like people. like I talked to a guy who sold this company for like $4 billion. And so you you just meet these like incredible people um, who are all extremely generous because you're getting a warm introduction from one of their friends and they just give you all the details. So I had probably like 10, 12 of those conversations in a week. And then um, kind of just, I, I learned so much. Like if I hadn't done that. What's the most memorable insight you learned from those conversations? Um, so- uh, if I can give two things, one is a pre-term sheet and one's a post-term sheet thing. Pre-term sheet, you have to attach the value of buying your business to how it will increase their market cap. So we talked about this on, I didn't show talk about my revenue. I talked about how they were going to do more loans if they bought us. So it's, it's, that's the entire conversation. And I, and I think that's literally like the, the, the difference between selling your business or not is just attaching your business to the market cap and market value that they will get from buying your business. The second thing is a process thing. I set up a call with Paul Gu, one of the co-founders of Upstart, twice a week. And it was Tuesday and Friday, I think. And it was 30 minutes. And it was like, we're just going to check in. And if we don't have anything to talk about, that's cool. We'll just say, hey, I got nothing on my end and we'll give the time back. But if there's any objections, any road bumps along the way, we need to talk about it in this meeting. Because Paul wants to do the deal. but. You know, Susie in finance might say, you know, I was digging through the things and did you know that like Q2 of last year churn was actually 6%, not 2%. And I need to be able to talk to Paul about that and say, yeah, totally. I, that, this, here's what happened. Here's why. So Paul can go back to Susie and be like, yeah, me and Makai talked about it. It's not a big deal. Like they solved that issue. It was a server issue, whatever. And so there were only a couple instances of that, but just having that touch point with the sort of the decision maker, but also the champion of your deal twice a week to just get ahead of any, any objections, I think is what made our process much smoother. And we ended up turning that term sheet into a
1: sale. Amazing, amazing advice. I hope everybody just underlined that advice because During the diligence process, there's a whole other team that gets sort of in place to weed through the numbers. And in many cases, they're incentivized to find stuff, right? To manufacture stuff or find stuff. And that justifies their role. But if the decision maker for the acquirer wants to do the deal, then having a direct line to them can be incredible. So great, great tip. Love that. Last question. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy. It sounds like you bought yourself a Porsche 911. Yeah. Was that the trophy that you uh, that you uh, have to commemorate the win or was this something else? Two things.
2: Um, so one, I bought the camera that I'm actually filming this on. I've always been into photography and this new like Sony camera had come out, it was 6,500 bucks plus the lenses and everything. And I was like, I, I wanted that camera so bad. So like the day the... Um, The, the definitive agreement was signed before the money even came. I bought the camera. I was like, I'm like, this is my like mini celebration. Um, and then yeah, about, uh, once, once I hit some liquidity in the deal, I bought a Porsche 911, 163 grand cash, uh, and, and went racing it. So I'd race it, uh, in different tracks in New York. And it's like, that is the, you know, little baby Micaiah childhood dream fulfilled, like the, the amazing supercar racing, like, man. It's, uh, it feels, I still like it giddy every time I see that car. Like it's, I had it on the wall for almost five years before I I sold the company and I would look at it every morning I woke up and every night before I went to bed, I'd look at that white Porsche and then I sold the business and bought it.
1: Everything comes full circle. Uh, the YouTube channel is youtube.com slash. Ask Makaya, And we'll put that in the show notes
0: at built2sell.com. Makaya, thanks for doing this. John, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Makaya. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to help support Built to Sell Radio, I would encourage you to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And then you can head over to Apple Podcasts where there you'll have a chance to leave a rating and review. Rating and reviews truly help our show grow and get in front of more business owners just like you. Also, a quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, I would encourage you to head over to our YouTube channel and type in at Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the full video podcast between John and Micaiah. Also, if you know someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them. Some of our best guests, like Micaiah, have come from a nomination. Big shout out to Timo Armu for, again, nominating a wonderful founder. And if you want to nominate someone just like Timo... I would encourage you to head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you have a chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest on Built to Sell radio. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the definitions for some of the more technical terms that were used, I would encourage you to head over to our show notes page, which you'll be able to find at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labattaglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.